This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. When you need energy on the go and don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. Espresso Monster is a premium blend of espresso and cream made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend complete with taurine and B vitamins. Each can has three shots of espresso and comes in vanilla espresso and espresso and cream flavors. I had one this morning before I came into the studio, and let me tell you, it gave me just the boost I needed to get my day going. Plus, it tastes so delicious, I'd drink it anyway. So close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Before my guest today hit the airwaves, daytime syndicated television was more freak show than talk show, with names like Donahue, Geraldo, Maury, and of course Springer, cynically exploiting dysfunctional families, troubled teens, and abused spouses for TV ratings, offering little to no educational value, and sending guests home no better off and sometimes worse off than they were before. But then in 2002, Dr. Phil McGraw debuted a show that proved that a no-nonsense therapist who offered actual empathy and common-sense solutions could raise awareness about mental health problems and get big ratings. In fact, The Dr. Phil Show, which is now in its 17th season, remains the number one syndicated talk show in America. And on today's podcast, Phil McGraw joins me to talk about the 2,000-plus episodes and countless guests he's helped, why many of them just can't accept that they have a problem until they see it on TV, and how every time Dr. Phil thinks he's seen it all, he encounters a guest who completely flabbergasts him. He recalls how losing a football game in junior high school inspired him to go into psychology in the first place, what it was like to go into practice with his father, and why he eventually decided to switch from getting into the minds of his patients to getting into the minds of juries, becoming one of the top trial consultants in America. He explains how that put him into contact with Oprah Winfrey, how he convinced her to move her entire TV program to Amarillo, Texas for three months during the infamous Mad Cow Beef Trial, and why he was initially hesitant when Oprah first invited him to come on her show. He discusses his belief that problems are complex, but solutions are often actually pretty simple. But he also says don't be fooled by the magic of television and his easygoing manner because hours of research and peer review by America's top doctors go into every single episode of The Dr. Phil Show. He shares a little relationship advice after 42 years of marriage, how his wife Robin is the Dr. Phil to Dr. Phil, always keeping him in check, and why Robin still sits in the audience of every taping of his show. Then, Dr. Phil discusses how his new podcast, Fill in the Blanks, is a welcome chance to interview interesting people without the pressure of having to solve all their problems, why he desperately wants to get O.J. Simpson on the show, and why for his next project, he's ready to make a splash in the popular true crime genre. Plus, why he never volunteers advice to his friends, what he'd do if he was mediating the government shutdown negotiations, and he weighs in on the prospect of an Oprah for President campaign in 2020. Coming up with Dr. Phil McGraw in just a moment.
Dr. Phil McGraw is perhaps the most well-known mental health professional in the world. He's the host of the number one daytime talk show, Dr. Phil, which is now in its 17th season. In addition to television, Dr. Phil is also the author of nine number one New York Times bestsellers. And now he has a new podcast called Fill in the Blanks. Dr. Phil McGraw, thanks for sitting down with me. Well, thanks for having me. I feel pretty important after hearing all that. (laughs) Well, you should. And that's just to start with. Uh, You just walked over from stage 29 where you were shooting the Dr. Phil show. And I was watching on closed circuit here, I guess. I don't want to give away too much, but you were dealing with a guest who was kind of a handful and thought he was a smooth operator with the women and maybe wasn't. And again, I don't want to give away too much, but he said some things that were pretty shocking that anyone would do to another person. And you were just incredulous. But I have to think after how many thousand episodes you've done at this point, does anything really surprise you anymore? You know, I say I've heard it all and seen it all. And the minute I say that, oh, yeah. the minute I say that, <laughs> I walk out there and somebody brings something up. And I think, oh, man, I didn't see that coming. You know, they say there's nothing new under the sun, but yeah. there's something about the human experience. People find new ways to run their lives off in the ditch. Yeah. It's just astounding to me. But, you know, when you look at things from a distance, things can look really clear. But when you're in the trenches, it's really hard for people to see it sometimes. And I've had so many people tell me, we have, on our set, we have 57 feet by 8 feet of laser screens. It's the highest definition, highest resolution screens you can have. And so many people tell me that when they come in, and see their lives, because we do background packages and bio packages, when they see their lives on screen, on those big screens, they say that sometimes that alone is is such a huge wake-up call. They go, wow. Really? I, I'd never really thought of it until I saw that, how our lives are actually unfolding and playing out. Now that I see it, it looks very different to me. Yeah. Yeah. What is it they say? If it's on TV, then you believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, your publicist and I were just sitting here uh, talking about uh, high school football in Texas. We were talking about my less than stellar career in high school football in Texas and talking about yours. I understand that your whole interest in psychology all began with, uh, I want to say, either a high school or a college football game that you lost. You know, it was was actually... um, we called it junior high then. They okay. call it middle school now. And, you know, I moved around. I wasn't a military brat, but you would think because I, I went to first, second, third grade in Tulsa, fourth, fifth, and sixth in Denver, seven, eight, nine in Oklahoma City, uh, 10, 11, 12 in Kansas City. Um, and so I I moved all around. And the the game that he's referring to, uh, I was playing in Oklahoma City in one of these, you know, Pop Warner or whatever they called them then. Mm-hmm. We had a game canceled because of rain. <clears throat> and the Salvation Army had a team. And they called our coach and said, I know your game rained out on s- Saturday. Could we come Monday and have a scrimmage game with you? And, and our coach said, sure. And we – we were really badass, so we thought. I mean, we had flashy uniforms and everything matched. And this Salvation Army team pulls up in two or three pickups out there, and they come 
piling out of the back and look like the grapes of wrath. <laughs> I'm dating myself when I say grapes yeah, of wrath. I know what you mean, though. But, uh, I mean, these kids, the, the kid that lined up across from me had on blue jeans rolled up to the knees for football pants, loafers <laughs> for football shoes. He had on a button-up shirt for a football jersey and had the number four in masking tape on his shirt. And, you know, we're snickering in the huddle saying, why didn't he put it on a magic marker? That's going to come off. Well, you know, that's how dumb we are. He put it on in masking tape because that was his shirt. That wasn't a shirt. That was his shirt. He had to wear that to school the the next day. Those kids lined up across from us. And I'm telling you, that kid hit me so hard it still hurts when it rains. (laughs) they, They beat us. Like they were clapping for a barn dance. I mean, it, was, it, it had to be fifty to nothing. And I remember walking wow. off of that field and saying to my dad, "What the hell happened?" And he said, "Well, you just got your ass handed to you on a platter." And I thought, "Well, I'm looking for something a little more in depth than that." And he said, "They just wanted it. The, mm-hmm. Those kids, they." They they don't ever get to play on a field with grass. They don't ever get to play with with referees. They, I mean, this was a big thing to them, and they just wanted it more than you guys did. And I thought in that moment, if those kids can do so much with so little, how much should I be able to do with so much more? And yeah. I thought right then, I, I was envious of those kids. I mean, they had – here they are, Salvation Army team, some of them living in group homes. But I was envious of what they had inside, and I wanted to know what it was. And I started studying motivation. I started studying you know, why people do what they do and don't do what they don't do from that day forward. I was 12 years old, and I've been really focused on it, maybe to an obsessive level since then, because I've really been focused on that. Now, did studying psychology make you a better football player? Not even almost. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't increase your foot speed. It yeah. doesn't make okay. you jump higher, run faster. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I played in junior high, high school, and college, mm-hmm. and uh, never very well. But uh, I did get a scholarship to uh, University of Tulsa. Uh, and I, I wouldn't have gone to college probably without it. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I can't complain too much. Yeah. Now I don't want to embarrass you here, but I heard <clears throat> that your team was on the losing end of one of the most lopsided games in college football oh, history. When let, you were let's in. go back to the part about, <laughs> I don't want to embarrass you here. Oh, oh right. Uh, right. <laughs> we got beat a hundred to six by Houston and I didn't play yeah. in that game because oh, okay. no, I was on the team. Okay. Uh, but that was back in 1968, so people can Google it, and you'll see <laughs> Houston Cougars 100, uh, Tulsa 6. Um, but the Hong Kong flu was kind of like the bad flu strains of today, and it had gone through our team, and most of us were in the infirmary sick. And Bill Yeoman, don't want to pick on anybody, but Bill Yeoman <laughs> was the Houston coach. And he said, look, don't cancel the game. It'll cost the school too much. Come down. We know you're sick. We'll just go through the motions. Not going to pick on you. Not going to run the uh. score up. <laughs> we had a guy taking snaps at quarterback that hadn't played the position since seventh grade. And 
I think 23 players went down. That's all that were well enough to go down there, and they ran the score up 100 to 6. <laughs> so now, much how's for that? Yeah, there's sportsmanship for you. <laughs> you graduated with your PhD in psychology, and as I understand, you went into practice with your dad, right? What, I did. What was for the a while. first practice like? Well, you know, my dad and I didn't get along, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an alcoholic, and. Uh, a pretty bad alcoholic, frankly, and I think as a result, uh, I haven't had a drink in 50 years. Wow. I just don't do it. Never have. I tried to get drunk once in, in high school. Oh, yeah. uh, couldn't do it. I'd, I would get a hangover while I was drinking, <laughs> not after. While, uh, seriously, I'd be, I'd be in the middle of it and feel like somebody hit me in the head with an axe. Yeah. Uh, but he was a bad alcoholic, and we did not get along because of that. I didn't mm-hmm. like him when he was drinking, which was almost always. And uh, so that was a contentious relationship, to say the least. And after that, you co-founded a trial consulting firm called Courtroom Sciences, Inc. Right. What did you do with Courtroom Sciences? Well, you know, when I was going through school, you know, in psychology, you declare um, a program that you go into. You can go into clinical or counseling or school or research or educational. Um, Clinical is the area that most people think of as a a therapist dealing with neurosis and psychosis and, you know, doing, seeing patients and doing therapy. And that was the program I was admitted to. And while I was there, uh, it was an APAE. APA approved program. They launched a new program, a behavioral medicine program. And so I decided rather than having a, a minor area that I would complete two cores, the clinical core and the behavioral medicine core. Um, so it's two PhD cores, only one degree, but two PhD cores. And my focus within it was brain and central nervous system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when when somebody gets injured, car wreck, on the job, whatever, you know, they break an arm or a hip or something, $50,000 insurance settles, it goes away. If somebody gets a brain or spinal cord injury, you're now talking millions of dollars, yeah. life plans, they hire experts to come and testify. And because that was my area of specialization, I wound up testifying a lot for both plaintiff and defendant sides of the docket. And people decided that I, I did so fairly effectively, so I did it a lot. And then they started asking me, you know, can you help us cross plan cross-examination for your counterpart on the other side? Because they're going to have an expert. Can you study their report and help us uh, cross-examine them? And then it was like, well our corporate representative is really not a good communicator. We want him to testify like you do. Could you kind of help prepare him? And, you know, I've, I've got a very busy practice. You go to court, the wheels of justice turn slow. You plan to be gone for a day. Then you're gone for four. You got all these patients. You, you can't, it, it got to where yeah. it, I had to make a choice between one or the other. And I decided I, I really love the trial work. And we decided just, I'm going to do that in a big way. And so Courtroom Sciences was launched. And 
it was kind of Toys R Us for lawyers. I mean, we had a full-size <laughs> replica of a federal courtroom. Interesting. I mean, wow. Uh, the only difference being the jury box held 50 people instead of six or 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, but judge's bench elevated the whole well of the court. We had six deliberation rooms, uh, all on closed-circuit television, so we could have six deliberations going on at one time, fed to a control room much like the one we have here, all going to tape so we could study patterns of deliberation, what was the common themes, what made a difference, not Mm -hmm. make a difference. Um, So we did trial strategy. We had a graphics department that sometimes would run 24 hours a day for you know, 400 days in a row sometimes. I mean, through the holidays, we had private jets flying graphics out to different trial sites around the country. I mean, Quite it was operation. a major undertaking. We did trials all over the country, had clients all over the world. So a lot of it was focused on figuring out the psychology of the jurors and how whatever strategy would be perceived or what order to present things, how to present things, right? We really help lawyers and clients tell the truth effectively. If you go to trial, you may have a thousand facts, but there's a subset of those facts that presented in a proper way are going to be most effective with that jury. And Mm -hmm. it's our job to find out what that subset of the total universe of facts are and what jury is going to look most favorably on those. And so we would help put together that jury composition. We did mock trials, many, many mock trials before the actual trial took place. Mm -hmm. And then we went to trial and helped in jury selection. We would often have a mirror jury in the courtroom that matched the actual jury, and we would debrief our mirror jury every night, give feedback to the lawyers. Wow, that's elaborate. Yeah, very elaborate. It was a it, it was a dress major rehearsal. undertaking, yeah. Yeah. Now, I got to be honest. When I look at the OJ trial and things like that, <clears throat> I find myself feeling pretty cynical about juries. And plus, my wife is a lawyer, and she t- tells me all of the things that you're telling me right now. You know, if it was my butt that was in a crack and I was about to go before a trial, I don't know if I would want a jury trial. From what you've seen, would you want a jury trial, or would you rather take your chances with a judge? I would one. 100% base it on what the cause of action was, mm-hmm. but my general attitude is juries tend to get it right. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I think the collective IQ of the jury is at least 1,200. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's interesting because that's not the perception from yeah. where I'm coming from. I think from where a lot of people are coming from. And I'll tell you why people that. have that attitude. They have the misperception that they go back there and deliberate whether the person is guilty or innocent. Mm -hmm. And that is not how it goes. Really? They go back there and they may have 40 pages of jury instructions. And then they may get a question. Do you find that the following six elements of action number one were met? And if you do, then proceed to question two. If not, jump to question seven Mm -hmm. it's not you know the oj jury pretty much got it right oh really based on what they were asked Mm -hmm. and what they were told Mm -hmm. they didn't hear everything that was heard in the media and they were not asked questions that got to 
guilt or innocence. They asked, did the prosecution prove A, B, C, and D based on what was presented in court? And the prosecution did not – they spent the first three or four days talking about whether he was a good husband or not. Let me tell you, if you've got somebody dead to rights on murder, are you going to lead with how good of a husband he is? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, that just yeah. – the, the jury answered the questions that were put to them based on the evidence mm-hmm. they were allowed to see. That was not a well-tried case. Had it been, he would have been convicted. Yeah. Uh, but they had to get one juror, one juror to have a yeah. doubt. And he, he walks. Yeah. I mean, I guess those are pretty good odds then. Yeah. <laughs> if you only have to convince one person. Somewhere along the way, I read that you recently said that you would like to have O.J. Simpson on your podcast. <clears throat> uh, I would. Do you think you could get the truth out of him? Well, he's never been, um, he's never been cross-examined. I would like to do that. I've spent really? a lot of my career uh, studying and developing techniques in deception detection. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference between spotting a lie and getting to the truth. Spotting the lie is one thing, but then once you know somebody's lying, actually getting to what is the truth mm-hmm. is a whole different skill set. Yeah. And um, I, would, I would like to talk with him about that night. And um, oh, I'd be interested to do that, and I think it would uh, be very telling. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Dr. Phil McGraw when we come back in just a minute. Did you know that 43% of college graduates are underemployed, working jobs that don't even require a college degree? Imagine if one of the most significant investments of your life, your college degree, only worked half the time. A refund is the least you'd expect. With courses in software engineering, data science, and UX UI design, Flatiron School stands behind its students with a tuition money-back guarantee. Flatiron offers graduates a career services program with career coaches and ongoing learning. Students who follow every step of the plan and don't get a qualifying tech job offer within six months of graduating are eligible for a full tuition refund. See the complete details at flatironschool.com terms. With graduates at hundreds of leading tech companies, the Flatiron School program is working. Full and part-time programs are available online and at Flatiron School campuses around the world. Join the school that's reinventing education, starting with student outcomes. Learn more at flatironschool.com kickass. Again, that's flatironschool.com kickass. And now, back to the show. It was in your capacity as a trial consultant, I think, that you first met Oprah. Wasn't it something with the the ranchers union or something like that was suing her over something she said about beef? It was a mad. It was called the Mad Cow case, and yeah. this was a time when the uh, beef supply in the United Kingdom uh, was called into question because mm-hmm. contaminated cattle were being processed and fed back to the herd. That food then, with the contamination, was crossing the blood-brain barrier and contaminating the cattle with this disease. 
there was some question as to whether or not that was happening in the United States, and this expert on her show suggested it was. She said, whoa, I'm not ever eating another burger again. (laughs) And supposedly the beef commodities on the Chicago Board of Trade went limit down that day, which the cattle growers said that equaled billions of dollars they lost. Yeah. So they sued her in Amarillo, (laughs) Texas, saying that she had impugned the beef supply, and they sued her for billions of dollars, and we went to trial in federal court in Amarillo. Well, I mean, it is her option not to eat beef if she so chooses. And it's her option to say (laughs) she isn't going to. Yeah. What kind of advice did you give her along the way? Um, Originally, our plan was, you know, truth is a defense to slander. And Mm -hmm. the way this worked is they said she had slandered the beef supply because it was a a commodity that was perishable. And we had the proof that what she said uh, and what the expert had said was true, that they were doing that and that the beef supply was at risk and truth is a defense to slander. And we had the experts to prove that. Mid-trial, I made the strategic decision to change course of action and not use truth as a defense to slander. In fact, Hmm. overnight, we got our experts outside subpoena range and got them out of Amarillo and did not put them on. What we did instead was defend her right to say it. Hmm. Not that it was true, but her right to express her opinion. And that's why at the end of the trial, she came out on the courthouse steps, raised her fist up and said, free speech rocks. <laughs> that was her total statement. Did you celebrate with a steak dinner or <laughs> where'd you go from there? Uh, no, we did have a show that night oh, right yeah. there in Amarillo because oh, really? she moved the show to Amarillo for the pendency oh, really? of the trial. Yeah. No kidding. Wow. She asked me in Chicago one day, what can I do to help? And I said, well, you could move the show to Amarillo. <laughs> she actually she turned did. around, picked up the phone and said, find me a spot in Amarillo. We're moving the show. <laughs> so, I mean, she was a gamer, I'll tell you. Yeah. Oprah can do that, I guess. Yep. <laughs> Were you surprised when she invited you on her show after all that? Uh, I was. She, uh, a producer called and said, you know, hey, Oprah wants you to come on the show. We're doing a show about this and so. And um, I, I actually said, no, I don't think so. And I'm not going to be here anyway. I'm going scuba diving. <laughs> and they said, well, okay. And they hung out. About 15 minutes later, she called back and said, you don't say no to Oprah. <laughs> She was laughing, said, you don't say no to Oprah, what are you doing? I said, I don't want to do it. I'm going scuba diving with my boys. And she said, well, how about we wait till you get back? And I said, well, okay. And uh, as the old saying goes, the rest is history. So, I mean, here I am, uh, I guess 22 years later, still doing television. I had no intention of doing television. At the time that you created the Dr. Phil show, you were kind of a little bit of a trailblazer because up till then, syndicated talk shows similar to yours that brought people as guests who were, you know, having some kind of problems or behavioral issues were mostly exploitative. Yeah. Like Donahue, was, Springer. Yeah. Was, and, you know, we, I graduated from Oprah University. Yeah. And so you learn to do it in a very different way. And when I started to do Oprah, even the first time, I said, look, um, 
I don't know whether this will work or not. And she said, well, everybody on my staff says it won't work, that you can't create meaningful psychological moments in this period of time. And mm. I've told them, you can. Uh, yeah. You know, Dr. Phil can. Uh, most people can't, but he can. Uh, just watch. And I said, look, I, I'm just going to do what I do. And if y'all turned into television, fine. If you can't, I was busy when you called me. Mm. So I, it doesn't make much difference to me. Uh, and I really planned to go do the show. I figured it would be a one-time thing and we'd have a great time. And, you know, she and I were friends. We'd, hell, hell we lived together at a bed and breakfast in Amarillo <laughs> for like three months or something. So, uh, and I'd worked with her for two and a half years leading up to trial. We had become very good friends. She's very good friends with my wife. And uh, so I thought, yeah, I'm going to go up. We're going to have a good time and mm-hmm. be something I did once and move on. Um, but I said, look, I'm just going to do what I do. If you can turn into TV, great. If you can't, fine. I just kind of do what I do, and then they work a way to do it and turn it into television. And You have had certain people in the psychiatric community who've said, well, you're just giving out easy answers and simplifying things too much. Are you perhaps a victim of your success in that you do come in and you make it look effortless and you, there's a certain assumption that you just stroll out on stage and wing it, which is not really the case at all. Yeah, Oprah it? said early on, yeah. she said, your biggest problem is going to be that you make it look really easy. Yeah. And um, the fact is, it's not easy. Uh, even my own mother, she <laughs> she's <laughs> passed away now, but she called me. Uh, one time we were talking and she said, Philip, let me ask you something. What do you do the other 23 hours of the day? <laughs> and I said, well, mother, what do you mean? She said, well, I, I watch you from four to five. What do you do the other 20? She, she thought I pulled up at four o'clock, yeah. did the show till five, and then I went home. She had no idea that I get a 250-page notebook yeah. for every wow. show, and I, I spend hours and hours preparing for this. She, she had no idea. I mean, people, I don't know what people think sometimes because I, I kind of have a, I don't know, an easy way of, mm-hmm. of delivering things. It belies the fact that there's been a lot of work go into this. And I've, yeah. you know, we have an advisory board here. Right. Um, and I heard it's, about that. it's made up of the top minds in psychology, psychiatry, medicine, sociology, even theology, nursing. Got the head of the family division from the Harvard Medical School and the children's psych division at Yale. And you know, we got Stanford University, Dr. Zimbardo. And a lot of these men and women are the editors of the peer review journals. So okay. they're so on they're the good advisory at checking board. Things. Yeah. So I might send something, a show about OCD, and they'll go, actually, there's been a real breakthrough article that hasn't been published yet. Let me send it to you. So the advice I'm giving might not even be published yet, but it's been peer reviewed Mm -hmm. and uh, cleared to go into the Journal of Abnormal Psychology or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I've got really great resources helping me to be sure that I'm giving the right advice. I've got this um, I've got this knack for getting these uh, gigs where somebody does all the work and I get all the credit (laughs) because I've got a great staff. We've got a whole Uh, research department here. People do a lot of work, and then I walk out there and get credit for it all. Now, your wife has been to every single taping of the show. Is that Everyone. right? Since day one. Everyone. 
Uh, I'm a newlywed. Do you have any kind of marriage advice or some go-to tips that you usually give? Uh, yes, dear. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, we've been, we've been married 42 years. Yeah. And uh, we've been together 45. And, you know, until we came out here, she never went to work with me. She never was involved <laughs> in what we did, what I did, uh, or me and what she did. And that was not the plan when we came out here, but we were doing some test shows in the beginning, and we did the first show, and uh, it was kind of like it was over, and I'm like, um, should I stand here or leave? I thought, well, I should leave. So I, I walked down the runway, and I'm going to turn right, and her chair's right there, and I thought, it's so unnatural just walk by my wife like I don't <laughs> yeah, know her just her. because I'm on TV, so... <laughs> Yeah. As I walked by, I reached down and took her hand and said, let's go. And she walked off with me and everybody in the control room said, oh my God, we love that. You should do that every time. And Robin said, fine. And, you know, she does so much more than just sit in the audience mm -hmm. because she's, I think, one of the foremost ambassadors in the fight against domestic violence. She has a foundation that works on that. She just went with me and testified on Capitol Hill about uh, domestic violence and opioid abuse and by young mothers and their children. She's raised over $100 million in money and services for the court-appointed special advocates program. Mm -hmm. She's very, very active in many of these uh, programs, and she's a feminine side for me. A lot of times I'll be yeah preparing a show and she'll say you better not say that <laughs> you better not say you better say this because yeah. she's she's my feminine yeah. side so it yeah. really helps are you, are you telling me dr phil has a dr phil you or, better or believe mrs it. phil yeah you better believe it <laughs> well since we brought up capitol hill and marriage counseling i have to ask what would you do with the government shut down if you were in that room with trump pelosi and schumer do you think that you could have helped them make some headway or knock their heads together. Well, you know, at this point, I, I really wonder whose agenda is being run. Mm -hmm. um, everybody involved in this is being paid uh, to run the business of this country, and not any of them are doing it. And I think they're all jockeying for position. I think they're all jockeying to protect their jobs. And who's doing our who's doing what we're paying them to mm -hmm. do I, I i'm i'm apolitical i, I don't right. take political sides or positions uh but i'm kind of like a pox on both houses i mm -hmm. mean come on yeah guys uh, let's let's we we've got what eight hundred thousand workers not getting paid These people have families and children uh, you know children yeah. and and mortgages to pay and food to put on the table. Um, I just think that's just not a very good strategy. How about in terms of addressing the political divide on the macro level, you know, getting people <clears throat> to the table and being able to have productive conversations without yelling or otherizing or, well, you know, I'm very disappointed that we've always been able to disagree, have a healthy debate mm -hmm. and then Say, hey, Ben, let's go to lunch. You know, we can disagree. I don't like your idea. You don't like mine. We can talk about it, uh, respect each other's right to have their opinion, and then say, okay, we're through talking about that. Let's go grab a hamburger. 
That's not how it is anymore. No. I mean, I, I think some of this is approaching McCarthyism. It's mm-hmm. I, I see it in Hollywood. I see it uh, in lots of ways on both sides of the aisle. I am very concerned. Uh, you know, we we preach all this inclusion and and freedom of speech, but it, we sure don't seem to be practicing it. Well, I want to bring it back to your new podcast, Fill in the Blanks, which I want to point out is P-H-I-L, right? Right. (laughs) Um, It must be especially nice for you to be able to sit down with someone and have a conversation without having the pressure of trying to solve all their problems. You know, it really is because on on Dr. Phil, necessarily, uh, you know, I've got 42 minutes and 18 seconds of of content time, Mm -hmm. um, and... I've got someone in front of me that presents a problem. Nobody comes here to tell me how well things are going. <laughs> I've, I've never had a guest come and say, I just want to stop by and let you know how great things are going in my life. Yeah. Um, and so by design, I'm on task with that issue and that problem uh, every time. And in the podcast, I, I'm, I don't have to do that. I'm not stamping out disease and suffering. Instead... I'm getting to talk to interesting people about interesting things. And it's really been funny. I only have the second one up now. Um, I did Shaquille O'Neal first and Dax Shepard is up just today. But I've done about 35 of them. Uh, I've only got two. You're all in, jumping in with both feet. Yeah, I've got about 35 of them in the can. And it's been interesting. I've done a lot of friends. like Shaq and Charles Barkley and Steve Harvey and Ron White and David Foster and uh, people that I know. But I've still learned some things from them that I didn't know when we mm-hmm. sat down and really got to talking. Because it's it's funny, when we're together, we're always doing something. We're playing golf or we're going somewhere yeah. or whatever. But to just sit down on purpose and talk, we've learned things about each other and it's really been a lot of fun. It's a little bit different than your show. You're not dishing out tough love and hard truths. Have you ever caught yourself sitting down with Shaq or someone and maybe slipping back into that mode and you know, <laughs> calling them out on something or giving them well, advice? Well, you know, I'm. Is it hard to shut that down? <laughs> no, and you know, it's it's interesting. I socially, like if if we were out to dinner, three or four couples, and somebody's got a problem with their kid or a friend of theirs uh, getting a divorce or something, I can tell you I'm the last one to offer advice. Really? I absolutely the last one to offer advice. I mean, in fact, it'll wind up where maybe everybody said something and they all turn around and look at me because I'm like, don't look at me. And my (laughs) wife will say, don't look at him because you know, everybody kind of wears a social mask and they'll say, well, Mm -hmm. I'm sure they'll work it out or what. Don't ask me if you don't want to know, because <laughs> yeah. I mean I might be the guy that sits there and say, "Well, that's his second wife and her third husband. They got a seventy-nine percent chance yeah. of divorce, no matter what <laughs> happens." And that's before you add in a seventeen-year age difference. So the chance of them making is just about yeah. zero. So y'all quit talking about it. And let's go. They go. Oh, she says, "Oh shit, don't ask him because <laughs> he's going to tell you the truth." So I don't volunteer yeah. advice and. Yeah. Uh, when I sit down with my friends, we uh, uh, we stay pretty loose and have yeah. a good time. I I sat down with Steve Harvey the other day, and he and I are really good friends. And 
I said at one time, uh, you know, what idiot gave both of us a mic at the same time? I mean, we we had a pretty good time, I'll have to say. Now, who are some of the other guests that you have scheduled to come on fill in the blanks? Well, you know, this isn't a celebrity podcast. I, mm-hmm. I've mentioned some of these because, you know, when I started out, I just started talking to some of my friends because I think they're interesting people or they wouldn't be my friends, I guess. Um, but I'm also talking to experts. I, um and ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, one of the most interesting ones I've done, uh, and he's a very good friend of mine, but it's Dr. Pat Johnson, who's uh, the head of uh, neurosurgery at Cedar sinai Hospital. Oh. Uh, there's been tremendous breakthroughs in neurosurgery. He's also a sideline doctor for the NFL. So oh, wow. we want to know what goes on inside that tent you know, what is the yeah. concussion protocol? What goes on inside that tent? What determines whether they go back in the game or where they don't mm-hmm. go back in the game? What determines where they go in the locker room or just the tent? What would he say if he was having to make a decision to let his kid play football or not mm-hmm. knowing what he knows yeah. about CTE and brain damage and all of those sort of things. So we had a what I think is a fascinating conversation. Yeah. And he's certainly not a, a celebrity in the celebrity right, but he's very right. distinguished in uh, his field. I, I, I talked to a woman who is a self-defense expert for children, um, you know, to dealing with predators and that sort oh, of wow. thing. And I, I'm going to be my own guest some as well because <clears throat> this year uh, – we have a lot of people that go get Dr. Phil show content, mm-hmm. you know, Dr. Phil content on the internet. Um, I think this year we'll pass over 2 billion views for the year on YouTube of people going and getting information. But maybe somebody got served with divorce papers. So they'll go look for shows that I've done on divorce mm-hmm. and but I've had so many people tell me that while that's helpful to them, that they would really like to talk to me. You know, they they go look at the video, but they really wish in that crisis they'd give anything like they could just talk. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to post up some some podcast where if you did talk to me on that day. Here's exactly what I would tell you. If you got okay. served with divorce papers this morning, interesting. here are the 10 things I would tell you to do before dark today. If you went in your kid's room and found drugs in his sock drawer, here are the seven things you need to do right now today before the sun sets. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if you did get to talk to me, let me tell you what I would tell you. Well, you but you might not know my exact situation. No. There are some things I'm going to tell you independent of your exact situation. Like, number one, they're not his friend's drugs. I don't give a damn what he says. <laughs> Those are his drugs. They're in his sock drawer. Yeah. Don't you believe that for mm-hmm. a minute? And given that, here's what you need to do yeah. second. And then, you know, we just go from there. Yeah. These are things that I would tell them. And when I've told people I'm going to do that, they're like, when? Yeah. Uh, so they, I think that's going to be interesting to people as well. We're going to talk to some couples um, about 
you know, just being couples. So mm-hmm. we can do a lot of different things that I think haven't been done yet. That's cool. Sounds like you're giving yourself a lot of room to kind of go where you want to go and do different things, different formats. Yeah. That's great. And I also heard that you're going to do a true crime podcast, which seems perfect for you <clears throat> with your jury selection experience and psychology. And yeah, all I that. spent a lot of time yeah. in the legal system. And, you know, I, I said I did clinical and behavioral medicine. Uh, when I, you know, I graduated and then you do your internship program. I did mine at the VA medical center in Waco, Texas. And then I did a year's postdoctoral fellowship in forensic psychology. Hmm. Um, and you know, when you do psychology in the law, um, it covers everything from working with the court on custody situations, fitness of a parent or whatever, all the way through making determinations of sanity uh, in murder cases. Is this person uh, fit to be tried? Uh, Was this an irresistible impulse or an impulse not resisted? Mm -hmm. And that distinction is just a Mm -hmm. few different words, but... The difference between an irresistible impulse and the impulse not resisted can mean the difference between the death penalty or going home in a very short period of time. And so um, I've I've done forensic evaluations in a lot of very high-stakes criminal situations, and we've done a lot of crime shows here at, at Dr. Phil. We've had... Uh, murder cases reopened. We've mm-hmm. had we've had cases we've done where, based on what we've done, people have been arrested and charged. And um, I've worked with law enforcement extensively for years and years. I'm a strong law enforcement advocate, so I've come across some intriguing uh, crime stories and. I'm, I'm going to not just describe them, which a lot of people do and do very well. Um, I'm a big fan of some of the crime shows that are out there, but rather than just describe the crime and, and what happened, I'm going to analyze mm-hmm. what happened from a, a psychological and forensic standpoint because I think people want to know who does this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, we just had Chris Watts, uh, that killed his wife and two children, family annihilator. There have been 81, 81 family annihilators in the last 25, 30 years. And people say, you know, Dr. Phil, who does that kind of thing? You know, people say that a lot. You know, who does that? When they say that to me, it's not rhetorical. Mm-hmm. They really want to know. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm, I'm going to yeah. tell them, and when we do a crime story, I'm going to go inside the mind of the criminal. I'm going to talk to him about the anatomy of this crime from the criminal's standpoint and let them see what's there because there are predators among us and they need Mm -hmm. to know how they think, how they act, and how to spot them. I think it's going to be interesting. Well, before we wrap up, I just got to ask you, do you have any inkling if Oprah might run for president? Would you vote for her? Do you think she's going to run? Well, of course, uh, the safe answer is that you would have to ask her. Mm-hmm. And the second safe answer is never say never. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I'll tell you, I don't think so. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll say in the same breath, um, <clears throat> she is much more qualified than probably most people think. Mm-hmm. Um, Oprah is, you know, people ask me a lot, you know, say, is, is Oprah like she seems? Uh, is she as nice as, as she appears? And the answer is no. Uh, she's not as nice as she seems. She's a lot nicer. Mm-hmm. The camera doesn't really do her justice. She is one of the most genuine, warm, caring people that I've ever met. You would love her if she was a gas station attendant or a senator or cleaning up the room after we left or or a television personality. It wouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. She's got what I call a health-engendering personality. You talk to her, you feel better about yourself than you did before you talked yeah. to her. And what people don't know is how intelligent and wise this woman is. Her sense of uh, the, the geopolitical landscape and economics and just the hydraulics of government and all. She is a very well-versed individual, mm-hmm. much more than a lot of people in office today <laughs> at <laughs> yeah. many different levels. Yeah. Um, so if she decided to run, it would not be a lark. Mm-hmm. It would not be like, wow, that's out of right. my field. People would find out when they started asking her questions that she didn't cram for the interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, she knows <laughs> like a lot more about what's going yeah. on in this world than than she ever yeah. talks about. Do you have any interest in being running mate? Uh, absolutely none. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> absolutely none. I would uh, be You're happy smart to, for that. Be happy to carry her briefcase yeah. or happy to support her in any way. But yeah. me and politics just yeah. don't uh, don't mix. Smart man. Well, once again, folks can listen and subscribe to the podcast. Fill in the blanks. Now that's P H I L. Just a reminder on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. And you can, of course, watch the Dr. Phil Show weekdays on your local station. Dr. Phil McGraw, thanks for talking with me. Hey, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thanks. Me too. Thanks once more to Dr. Phil McGraw for coming on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen to his new podcast, Fill in the Blanks, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. For more information and upcoming guests, visit drphilintheblanks.com. Of course, The Dr. Phil Show airs on TV every weekday, and you can visit drphil.com for your local listings and follow Phil McGraw on Twitter at at DrPhil. Flatiron School is reinventing education, starting with student outcomes. With courses in software engineering, data science, and UX UI design, Flatiron School stands behind its students with a tuition money-back guarantee. Learn more at flatironschool.com slash kickass. That's flatironschool.com slash kickass. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kickass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News.
Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.